And that, my friends, is how America was made great once again. Breaking at this hour, Jimmy Sangenberger is currently at the crossroads of politics and economics. Radio broadcaster master, now the celeb on the web. He's the smarty of the party. He's in cahoots with the grassroots. Jimmy at the crossroads brings you thought-provoking commentary, hard-hitting interviews, original satire, and the best bumper music known to man. Jimmy at the crossroads! Gonna talk money, gonna talk politics, we're for all generations, oh what a great mix I said, gonna talk money, gonna talk politics, grateful all generations, oh what a great mix, I got Jimmy and the Crossroads, making sense out of nonsense, people want answers, they want to understand They come to the crossroads And Jimmy gives them the plan I said, gonna talk money Gonna talk politics Great for all generations Oh, what a great mix I got Jimmy at the crossroads Making sense out of nonsense Come on, Jimmy, what you got? Elections, current events, the broadcast master knows just how to win. I said, Policy and markets, elections and current events, the broadcast master shows us how to win. I got Jimmy and the Grassroads making sense out of nonsense. Gonna talk markets, gonna talk politics. Great for the generations. Oh, what a great mix! I said, got cash money, talking politics. Great for generations. Oh, what a mix! I got Jimmy at the crossroads, making sense out of nothing. No My gosh, that voice. From the great Biff yeah. Gore <laughs> to kick things off this Ooh. week. It is Monday, June 8th, 2020. Welcome to another edition of Jimmy at the Crossroads. I am Jimmy Sangenberger, your host for the program. And it is such a pleasure and a privilege to be with you today as it is Every time we're here in partnership with the Washington Examiner, thanks for joining us, being a part of the program. If you want to join into the festivities, different ways to do that. 24-7, 365, at Sang Center on Twitter. You can tweet at me. You can also log on to JimmyAtTheCrossroads.com or the own personal website I've got. JimmySangenberger.com. Remember, there's no A, there's no I, there's no U in Sangenberger. It's all E's all the time. Once you know that, Sangenberger is easy. Plus, if you like 
my Facebook page. You can send a message that way, too. Jimmy Sangenberger, media personality, the place to go also on Facebook, where you can catch all the great content we've got from Jimmy at the Crossroads and more from yours truly. If you have not done so already, please do subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy at the Crossroads. Indeed, Jimmy at the Crossroads on YouTube. In addition, please be sure to follow our partners and friends at The Washington Examiner on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and on their website, WashingtonExaminer.com, the place to go for great reporting and commentary on the issues of the day. Coming up in the next segment, going to play interviews I recorded over the weekend with a couple of folks from Colorado. You see, there's, there are a few state uh, U.S. Senate seats that are up right now that are vulnerable for Republicans to lose. One of the most vulnerable Senate seats in the country for Republicans is right here in Colorado where I'm broadcasting from. Republican U.S. Senator Cory Gardner is in what could be the fight of his life politically. Former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper has not secured the nomination yet in his Democratic primary. Andrew Romanoff, former Colorado House Speaker, is vying for that post as well. The primary is underway. The end of this month, it'll be settled. Hickenlooper still likely to be the nominee. But he had an ethics complaint filed against him. And last week, there was an ethics hearing that lasted two days. He finally testified on Friday only after being held in contempt of the Independent Ethics Commission, a state body tasked with investigating these kinds of violations. And he was found in violation of two counts against him. We're going to get the inside story on this significant development in the race for U.S. Senate in one of the most impactful states that have a Senate race in 2020. We'll talk with Suzanne Steyer, who is the attorney who represented the Public Trust Institute, the organization that is responsible for bringing the complaint. She's director of the Public Trust Institute. We'll talk with her, as well as Michael Fields, executive director of Colorado Rising Action, an organization, conservative organization in the state. You do not want to miss that conversation. But first, today, on Friday, we got some pretty darn good jobs numbers. Two and a half million jobs created in this country in the month of May, according to to the Labor Department. Now, this is significant because, first of all, it is the single largest jobs gain in one month in the history of this country. But even more, the expectation was that 8.3 million Americans would have lost their jobs in May. That is a differential of what, like 10 million in a positive way? That's incredible. Two and a half million jobs created just from reopening and beginning a full-throated reopening process. Not only that, but the unemployment rate for the country was previously at 14.7% in April. Now, 
it's at 13.3%. Now there are discouraged workers who've left the workforce. The labor force participation rate is lower than it was in the past, meaning there are fewer workers in the workforce, which demonstrates that the economy is struggling. We're in a very difficult and precarious position, for sure, but we're also seeing real positivity because the unemployment rate, 13.3%, down 1.4 percentage points from the month of May, not up, when the expectation, the forecast, was that it would be up to 19.5%. 13.3 percentage points. 13.3% is what? 6.2 percentage points lower than 19.5%. This is positive news. Not only that, let's put up pick one. Here, this image is from CNBC, and it shows that this is indeed the single largest one-month increase on record in the job market. A very positive indicator for the economy. Now, in a moment, we'll talk about the prospect that maybe this is just a blip, maybe we shouldn't read too much into this, or how should we actually interpret this positive data? But first, what I want to do is play a clip, a few minutes from my interview debate with Mark Cuban back, what, three, four weeks ago now, where he came on this show and talked about his idea for a jobs program that would create ideally three to four million jobs by the government, by the U.S. federal government, particularly hiring people to do tracking and tracing and other coronavirus-related occupations. So let's take a listen to this, take a look at what we did a few weeks ago with Mark Cuban. And then I've got some commentary, some thoughts on what Cuban said then, how our debate went at that point in time, and what these jobs numbers show us right now. About the compressed period of time, Mark Cuban. I mean, the idea of the federal government hiring four million people, you have to bring in all the job applications, then you have to go ahead and train them. You have to go through rigorous processes in order to make all those ducks get in a row. And by the way, I don't trust that the bureaucracies of the federal government are particularly effective at that sort of thing. How, how, do you, how do you think that you can get this done quickly enough to A, have an impact, and B, make it so that, you know, I mean, the private sector innovation, what if during that interim time we have successful at-home tests that are produced well, produced effectively, produced easily for people to do, and you don't need to be hiring 4 million people because you know, the private we, sector... We can play what if until we're blue in the face, right? There's a lot of what ifs. So, you know, yes, if tomorrow they come yeah. up with a the solution, then none of this matters, and you just you can stop the program. And I get the whole idea that once government gets started hiring people, it's almost impossible to take them off the payroll. And yes, that's a problem. I mean, I don't like that any more than anybody else. But you have to ask, where are we and what are we going to do to get forward? So will it take more time? Will it take some time for the government to hire that many people? Yes. Can they work within AmeriCorps and other organizations that already are used to hiring a lot of people? Yes. Will it possibly take longer than we ever anticipate? Definitely yes. But if you stack that up against doing it all privately, I just don't see a path where we can create tens of millions of jobs over the next 12 months. And even with all the waste, even with all the inefficiencies that are assigned to government hiring and government programs, they still will create the jobs that will amplify the demand, which will then increase the ability for companies to succeed. And that's what we need, even when you have waste to show. Look, any, any company that starts, no company is 100% efficient. 
you know, so a typical capitalistic company that's doing well might have 10% inefficiencies. The government might have 30 or 40% inefficiencies. But even after those problems with government, there's no other realistic business environment or private environment that can create the number of jobs that we need. And that's, that's the bottom line. I, I, I think uh, the, the, the difference, and I appreciate it. I mean, you're, you're very much uh, articulate in presenting the perspective. I just don't have that kind of trust and faith in the federal government to do those sorts of programs. We got to let dogma thing. go, also Well, but you it's know, not just about dogma. It's about practicality. And we've seen uh, countries so Jimmy, across the globe. Yeah. So, so, Jimmy, you're an entrepreneur. I'll, I'll give you the alternative. You're an entrepreneur. Sure. You've got to create 30 million jobs over three years. Tell me what companies can do that. So first tell me of what all, 20 or 50 or 100 companies I, can do that. I can't tell you a specific companies that can do that because I don't know. In fact, or investors. I, but, but, but what I the greatest investors of right. all time. Well, but I don't presume to think that I know who's going to be the best investor, the best company to do that, just as I don't think the government is, uh, that I can presume that the government's going to be effective to do it. I think if you start reopening, which seen, isn't going to be an instant process because you do have, of course, you have a situation with reopening where not everybody's going to go to restaurants, not everybody's he's going to go to movie theaters and so forth. But if you begin that process and allow people to start their businesses back up and continue to provide some of the assistance that we've been doing, I think that could be much more effective, especially with a deregulatory regime, than having the government yeah, do what hasn't worked in the past, in my view. I wish you were right, Jimmy. I really, really wish you were right. And prior to January of 2020, I would agree with you 100 out of 100 times. But this is not what we're facing today. And getting opened up a little bit, you know, is fine. It's a step, you know, that we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll find out what happens. Because, you know, when I look at my small businesses and talk to all the other small businesses that I deal with, you know, when you try to open up at 25% or 50% or even 100%, knowing that a big chunk of your customer base won't leave their house or are only willing to buy online, lots of times it's not even cost effective to open up. And so you've got that challenge to, to deal with. And so just merely opening up doesn't address how, how commerce has changed. Doesn't address how commerce has changed. Back live now here, Jimmy at the Crossroads. That was Mark Cuban and I almost four weeks ago. And he was talking about how we needed a federal jobs program in order to create, say, 3 million jobs in short order. But just by reopening the economy, the American economy created two and a half million jobs. The private sector did that, not a government program, and with respect to President Trump, not President Trump either. Although he's trying to make it more possible for the economy to grow back to the heights it was as of January of this year. Keep in mind, we're in June. It was still less than five months ago, four months ago even, that the economy was still very robust in the United States, particularly because of the lower tax, less regulation regime policies of the Trump administration. That was all positive, all well and good, helped boost the economy tremendously. And it gave us a buoy to help withstand the current crisis. Because we finally started reopening last month, it gave more of an opportunity for the economy to grow. Now, the riots certainly are doing damage to a lot of parts of the country, making it more difficult to recover in certain cities and locales. Make no mistake about it. But the significance of reopening itself 
is not something that we should understate, nor should we overstate it, but we certainly shouldn't understate it. Now, there's a noted economics guru, Mohammed El Arian, who is called upon oftentimes by like CNBC and other places to give his analysis of what's going on in the economy. And he was very encouraged. I, I don't always agree with El Arian, but he was understandably and rightly very encouraged in cut two yesterday when he went on Fox News Sunday with Chris Wallace and was asked for his reaction on this jobs report. I was very surprised. This will go down in history as the biggest positive data shock for the markets and the economy. And you saw how surprised the markets were. They surged on Friday, capping a strong week and with the Nasdaq closing at a record high. It was also very surprising to the economists. Not a single one thought that we would create jobs. Everybody expected that the unemployment rate would go up. In terms of what it means, people are still scratching their head. It's some combination of an incredibly resilient economy that's bouncing back. The impact of government measures, including the Paycheck Protection Program, and finally, maybe some data distortion. So we can't figure it out yet, but it certainly is good news. It is indeed good news. And here's why. Because it shows that if you get the government out of the way and unleash individuals and businesses in the private sector, to actually do things, to actually create wealth and create jobs and sell products and goods and services, then the economy can function. And that's finally what we were seeing in May, and rightly so, because now we're at a point where the coronavirus is nothing like it was two months ago. And there is no justification for it, none whatsoever, not even worth entertaining. The idea of a persistent shutdown or even slow reopening. It's time. The, the, the reaction, by the way, we've said this last week, the reaction to the protests that we've seen across the country, the protests and the riots over the murder of George Floyd two weeks ago today, helps underscore the point that it's not as catastrophic as was predicted, that we can handle this. We're seeing death count go down on a weekly basis now in this country. But I digress. The point is the private sector, not some government program, did this when the government got out of the way. Yes, I will concede that some of what the government did to help keep the economy afloat was helpful in providing relief. That's why I advocated for some kind of federal programs in order to help buoy the economy. Sure. But that doesn't mean that it was because or even largely because of that that we were able to see the economy start to rebound last month. Now, there are folks, of course, who are critical of this, who are saying, you know, this isn't as great as you might think. Trying to be a little bit more gloomy about this picture. Let's go to cut four. This is liberal commentator. And now I think she's executive director of an organization, Marie Har, formerly of the Obama administration. And her reaction after Joe Biden, there was a clip of Joe Biden played on Fox News Sunday yesterday. She gave reaction to that in the jobs report. The president who takes no responsibility 
for costing millions and millions of Americans their jobs deserves no credit when a fraction of them return. Marie, first of all, the president didn't cost millions of Americans their jobs. It was the, the virus that did. And doesn't he risk, in a response like that, looking like a bad case of sour grapes? I think that Joe Biden's message here is going to be that uh, there's still a lot of people hurting out there in this country and that the recovery, the small recovery we've started to see is only really at this point benefiting one sector of Americans and that's white Americans. So there are millions and millions of people still out of work at depression level eras. Uh, depression era levels and Joe Biden's theory of the case has always been I feel your pain he has empathy that is in stark contrast to President Trump who invoked George Floyd's name when talking about these unemployment numbers so I actually think that Joe Biden has a message here that will resonate with the millions of Americans still out of work things are still very bad for many people right now and we can't lose sight of that because of these small good economic numbers I will give Marie Harf two things, two of the points that she raised. One, that the economic gains we saw last month in the jobs numbers were better, particularly for white Americans. That's true. I will also give her that this does not mean that the economic pain is gone. Absolutely. We still have nearly 40 million Americans who are out of work, according to the official statistics, and then also a labor force participation rate that increased. Make no mistake, the economic malaise is, is still here. But at the same time, we're seeing improvements. We're seeing people get back on their feet. Because the government's getting out of the way, because the government is letting people go back to work, we're starting to see the economy return. And by the way, it wasn't just the virus that cost millions of Americans jobs. It was government policies that said in order to combat the virus, we must force you out of work or shut down your business. The virus was a reason for it and also an excuse for it. I say a reason, especially in some parts of the country where it's absolutely necessary, one could argue compellingly at least, to have people stay at home for the most part. Many other parts of the country where there were stay-at-home orders don't seem to show that there was a particular benefit to it. But keep in mind, it was the government and state governors, especially Democratic governors, that were responsible more than anybody else for this economic malaise that we're facing right now. So while Marie Harf is right to be skeptical of how big this is as an indicator of economic growth, she's wrong to poo-poo it. And just say, oh, these small gains, it's actually really significant when you expected 8.3 million Americans to lose their jobs, and the statistics show 2.5 million gained employment. Now, when you go underneath the numbers, I mean, they're not going to be necessarily always the best jobs, but the point is people are getting back to work and in record numbers for one single month. Here's another clip. Let's go to cut three. One more I want to share of Mohammed El Arian yesterday on Fox News Sunday.
We've been talking about the V. This is better than a V. This is a rocket ship. This is far better than a V. So are we on a rocket ship uh, that the economy is now headed straight back up? So all the data, the high-frequency data, you cited some of them, others include mobility, restaurant bookings, they all point to a pickup. What they don't point to, however, is a very sharp V, more like a check mark, Chris. That's what they point to. And that's really important because the worst thing we can do right now is to relax, is to think the economy is coming back on its own. We don't have to worry about what it's going to look like in the next six months, 12 months. There's a lot we can do now to make sure that this recovery is sustainable and it's inclusive and strong. Well, I want to pick up on that because Republicans in Congress were already questioning the need for another stimulus package. And over the weekend, Larry Kudlow, the president's top economic advisor inside the White House, said that he doesn't think talks with the Senate, Senate Republicans, about another stimulus package will even start till after July 4th. Do you think that this is the right time to take our foot off the gas pedal? I wouldn't take our, our foot off the gas pedal. I would evolve what we're doing. So rather than focus just on relief and very broad relief measures, sending everybody checks, let's have very focused relief measures that focus on the most vulnerable segments and importantly, do this in a pro-work way. Secondly, let's ensure that living with COVID encourages people to engage more. And finally, let's do things we know we need. Both parties know we need this. We need better infrastructure. We need better labor retooling and retraining. Let's take this opportunity to put in place the foundation for very strong growth. Again, Mohammed El Arian yesterday on Fox News Sunday. And look, I don't like the expression, take the foot off the gas pedal, because the government doesn't drive the economy like that. Only when the government removes roadblocks to prosperity does prosperity happen. And does the economy finally start to grow and to strengthen? I don't think that the idea of the government doing things to sustain the recovery is necessarily appropriate. Now, maybe there are some narrowly tailored objectives that they can be working towards like Elarian was suggesting, but even then, we're at a point now where we need to learn the lessons of history and how government policies in the Great Recession and the Great Depression and other recessions that our country has faced have helped to prolong those economic declines or to slow the recovery. One of the reasons why the recovery in 2009 was so slow, the one that began in 2009 under Obama, was because of the kinds of big government heavy-handed policies that Barack Obama was putting into place, in part under the guise of let's help the economy. So more government's not the answer to addressing the economic malaise. Maybe there are some narrowly tailored programs, perhaps, like Elarian was saying, but even then, we have to be skeptical, we have to be discerning. And we have to think, okay, what is it that you're actually trying to accomplish here? And is it really necessary? Necessary, not even in a hypothetical world better, 
for government to do something, but is it necessary? And a program like what Mark Cuban was suggesting, for example, clearly in my view is not necessary, both also not just because of the, the economic side of things, but also because of the fact that now in this country we don't see the need for testing and tracing where you need to hire four million people. We just don't see that anymore. So I think we're at a point in our country where prosperity can slowly start to develop once again because of the strong economy we had coming into this crisis, government getting out of the way, and at this point now for more and more businesses allowing them to reopen, and also by government, sure, doing some things to help buoy Americans and American businesses so that they didn't shut down during this malaise. But I think this is a lesson that the market will do the greatest good for the American people, not the government. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger. You are watching Jimmy at the Crossroads, coming to you in partnership with the Washington Examiner here today. In a few moments, we're going to share with you my interviews with Suzanne Steyert, who's the attorney for the Public Trust Institute here in Colorado, who prosecuted former Governor John Hickenlooper last week in an Independent Ethics Commission hearing that lasted two days and including Hickenlooper getting held in contempt, the first Coloradan ever to be held in contempt in the history of the state by the Independent Ethics Commission. This is important because Governor Hickenlooper is very likely to be the Democratic nominee to challenge vulnerable Republican Senator of Colorado, Cory Gardner. We'll share my interview with Suzanne Steyart as well as with Michael Fields, Executive Director of Colorado Rising Action. Keep it right here. It's Jimmy at the Crossroads coming in partnership with the Washington Examiner. And ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome back to the Crossroads set, Mr. Sang Style himself, Jimmy Sagenberger. This is a bumper tune called Way Out West, and I figure since we're coming out west for this segment and our focus on Colorado, that we might as well come back with something with a little bit more of a western feel to it. Welcome back to Jimmy at the Crossroads. I'm Jimmy Sangenberger, your host for the program. Great to be with you once again in partnership with the Washington Examiner. If you have not done so already, please be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy at the Crossroads. That's Jimmy at the Crossroads on YouTube. And also be sure to like the Facebook page, Jimmy Sangenberger Media Personality, facebook.com slash Jimmy Sangenberger Pro. And 24-7, 365, please, you see it right there. Tweet at me, at Sang Center. That's saying with an E, not an A, Center on Twitter. And be sure to follow me. Click that follow button on Twitter. In addition, be sure to like Watch and follow and subscribe to our friends at the Washington Examiner on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and of course at WashingtonExaminer.com. In a moment, we will focus in on Colorado, where there is it is one of the most significant, impactful races in this country that we're about to see in November of 2020, with U.S. Senator, incumbent Senator Cory Gardner, Republican, being 
perhaps the most vulnerable Republican in the country. And his likely challenger, this primary underway, due to be settled on June 30th, so the end of this month. But his likely opponent is the former governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper, who last week had an independent ethics commission hearing. That's a body here in Colorado said to uh, investigate these types of ethics violation claims like ones that he had been presented with. And he was found in violation of two counts and also was held in contempt as the first Coloradan ever to be held in contempt by the Independent Ethics Commission. And I'm going to share a couple of interviews with folks on particularly one on the inside track on this, the attorney who prosecuted John Hickenlooper. But first, justice friends, superheroes have to look their best. Do you remember a superhero who wasn't well-groomed? I do. It was Chubby Thor. Odin's son was not representing, and nobody was scruffy man enough to point it out. Don't do that to your superhero dad. With great grooming comes great responsibility. After dad leaves his fortress of solitude, (laughs) the bathroom, He wants to come out of his dad cave having transformed from shaggy man to scruffy man. Scruffyman.com is your source for dad's grooming power. Groomers, assemble the beard grooming kit for men. It's got everything you need for daily grooming. The -the state-of-the-art MK2 razor is made from the same aluminum as the UH-60 Blackhawk helicopter. You'll think Stark himself designed it for your Iron Man. Make sure Superhero Dad is scruffy, man. He'll look his best faster than a speeding razor, able to cut through jungles of hair in a single swipe. So log on to scruffyman.com today. In time for Father's Day next Saturday, two Saturdays from now, it's coming up on the 21st, you'll get free shipping for all orders over $49, and your gift will arrive quick as a flash. Use the promo code JIMMY and SHAZAM. You'll get an additional 20% off their Father's Day discounts. That's scruffyman.com, and use the promo code JIMMY at checkout. Appreciate our friends at Scruffy Man. All right. I want to get to this interview here. So I I say a bit in in the lead-in about what was going on last week, lead-in that I did before playing, before interviewing Suzanne Steyer. This was from Saturday that our first guest was interviewed. And when we talk about Independent Ethics Commission and when we talk about Colorado, uh, we talk about the Constitution, We're talking about the state of Colorado, to be clear. There's no federal independent ethics commission. There's no federal constitutional limit on gifts that a politician can get. But here in Colorado, there is a limitation on gifts under the Constitution in Amendment 41, and there also is an independent ethics commission. Without further ado, my interview from Saturday with Suzanne Steyer. So here in Colorado, where I'm broadcasting from, of course, there's just so much political intrigue surrounding the U.S. Senate race with John Hickenlooper challenging incumbent Senator Cory Gardner. Well, before John Hickenlooper ran for Senate, while he was still governor, in fact, in 2018, before the 2018 elections, an ethics complaint was filed with the Independent Ethics Commission, charging that Governor Hickenlooper had violated constitutional limitations 
on gifts from people outside of your family and close friends. Amendment 41. Governor Hickenlooper tried to get rid of this case before the Independent Ethics Commission, but they wouldn't have it. They consistently decided to move forward after he left office and beyond until this past week, when on Thursday he was set to be before the Independent Ethics Commission, at least his case was. The former governor was refusing to show up. Now, he finally did on Friday in a second day of hearings before the Independent Ethics Commission, but it was like he was being dragged kicking and screaming to actually get to the point of testifying. The Attorney General's Office for Colorado was even trying to serve him a subpoena after a court ordered that he had to testify. And the former governor, John Hickenlooper, was even held in contempt by the Ethics Commission. Um, I would move that the commission uh, enter an order finding the respondent in contempt for his failure to appear today. Um, by failing to honor the subpoena of the commission, the respondent has indicated a disrespect for the rule of law, disrespect for the commission, disrespect for the process, disrespect for the parties and the witnesses, um, a disrespect for an agreement that was made to appear voluntarily before the commission. Asserted that the commission has been causing delays in these proceedings and is now in intimating that he wants to cause a delay in the proceedings by having the proceedings with him present and a later date, which we are not sure he would appear at because of his not appearing today. That's where we are, and, and the, the failure to appear is something that I, I think you can see, that everyone can see the commissioners are not taking lightly. This case was put forward, the filing of the ethics complaint, by the Public Trust Institute. And I am very pleased today to be joined by the lawyer for the Public Trust Institute who essentially prosecuted this case before the Independent Ethics Commission on which Governor Hickenlooper was found in violation of two of the six counts. Suzanne Steyer, also former Deputy Secretary of State for Colorado, joins us now here on the show. Suzanne, welcome to the program. It's good to have you. Thanks, Jimmy. Thanks for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time today. So I summed up some of the facts of the situation why don't you give us the full details well at least on the on the backstory let's start with the backstory the backstory so originally um the the complainant who was uh the former speaker of the house frank mcnulty filed about 90 some uh different counts at the ethics commission most of them were dismissed because the ethics commission only has a one-year statute of limitations so we went forward on six different counts plus a failure to report uh, the last couple of days. And, um, you know, it was quite the roller coaster to get there. One thing that was so striking to me, I mean, I'd never heard, for example, of a Maserati limo before until I, <laughs> I first looked into this back in 2018 and interviewed Frank McNulty from the Public Trust Institute about this whole saga. I mean, what are, what are some of the things that Hickenlooper was doing in violation of the ethics rules, and what are the ethics rules that he was in violation of? So in Colorado, you can't take, uh, there's an amendment in the Constitution that was passed uh, back in 2006. You can't take a gift. Um, at the time it was passed, it was $50. They adjusted every year. So during the time of the complaint in 2018, it was $59. Can't take a gift over $59 uh, from anybody 
if you're a elected official uh, or a state employee or local employee. Um, and so he, his were all well over. We were talking about private jet trips and um, exclusive um, kind of elite conferences and that sort of thing. So during the 2018 period, he took uh, five separate private jet trips and went to a conference called Bilderberg, uh, which was in Turin, Italy. And uh, all the conference fees were paid for by Fiat Chrysler, including the Maserati limousine. I would love to try one of those Maserati limos and get it as a gift, even just for a ride like he had that opportunity for. I don't know that that's going to happen, but what's so flagrant about this is that he had to know that this was a gift. He had to know that this was not something authorized under Amendment 41 in Colorado's Constitution, but Governor John Hickenlooper, then governor at the time, seems to have felt that he was above the law. Is that a sense that you got? Because I, I saw that play out the past couple of days with the Independent Ethics Commission, too. Yeah, I mean, at first I thought, well, maybe he just doesn't pay attention to the amendment and he just does whatever he wants. I mean, it certainly seemed like a pattern of conduct. But then when he uh, was found in contempt by the commission for failing to obey the subpoena, you did really get the sense that he felt like he was above the law in all these aspects. Again, we're talking with Suzanne Steyert, who is the attorney who essentially prosecuted this Independent Ethics Commission case against John Hickenlooper, former governor of Colorado, now running for United States Senate. Was there a value amount placed upon uh, these gifts that he had been given, for example, for the Turin Italy trip, like an estimated value of what he had been provided by the uh, by the organizers or by Fiat Chrysler? No, that we didn't really estimate the cost because we had an estimate of just the transportation to and from the airport that was above fifty nine dollars. And so they'll look into that during sentencing and they can fine him up to two times of whatever he took. But in addition to the, the transportation, there were two private tours. Um, there was an army of security. I mean, this this is not a conference of like local elected officials. This is a conference of CEOs and world leaders, and he was the only elected official from the United States. So um, this was not, so every night there were rooftop cocktails, there were, um, you know, formal dinners, there was, there were these sessions, there were breakfast, lunches. Um, it was, it was very well uh, attended to. Yeah, that's so striking. I mean, here you've got the, at the time, governor of Colorado going on this trip, very fancy. It seems more like a vacation than anything of significance in terms of the value, for example, for the people of the state of Colorado. And yet he argued, no, this was not uh, a gift uh, or what? what? What was it that he was arguing? Well, on that particular one, he basically said, I had no way to know. Um, he paid for the room, which was about $1,500. He was there three or four nights. And he tried to claim that he thought it was all inclusive, even though the credit card receipt is just for the room. And even though he only paid $1,500, um, you know, I mean, clearly when you uh, go up for your second night of rooftop cocktails and it's at a, you know, museum of, you know, the Library Royale and you're having a private tour and an army of securities following you around, I think at some point, uh, a, a normal average elected person would know that somebody was paying for this. Um, the website also said hosted by Fiat Chrysler. There were gift bags hosted by Fiat Chrysler. 
I asked him about, you know, were there remarks made uh, that would have made it clear? I mean, the CEO of Fiat Chrysler was there. He tried to claim he just didn't know. It wasn't his job to ask. There's no way he could find that out. And on that point of the, the Turin trip, that was one of the two violations that he was, uh, that the Independent Ethics Commission said he'd actually done. I'm saying violations because it's not a criminal proceeding. It's an ethics proceeding, so it's not a guilty or not guilty type of situation. So what was the other one? The other one was a trip he took out to, the, um, to a USS Colorado uh, submarine commissioning ceremony. And that one actually was pretty clearly a state function. Um, we had uh, other state senators and representatives who attended that, but the difference was everyone else who attended um, either had you know, the state buying their room or they paid their own way. In the case of some witnesses that we, uh, a witness we called, um, he flew on a private jet uh, owned by Colorado's biggest home builder, the, the company. And uh, in addition to the private jet trip, he had, you know, VIP dinners and lunches and VIP seating and a lot of stuff that wasn't available to the rest of the contingency that went out there. So that was a gift from a corporation uh, again. Now, it's just when you think about the low dollar amount, I mean, there's reasons why uh, there are reasons why a lot of people will say, $59 is ridiculously low as a gift amount. Okay, I would, I would say that, and now it's 65 I would say that. But whether or not that amount is appropriate is irrelevant when that's what the law is. And in each of these circumstances, particularly the two that you're describing, Suzanne Steyart, both of those situations, it's pretty darn obvious that the amount that he was being given was well beyond it. We may not know the exact amount, but well beyond $59. That's abundantly clear. And yet, former Governor John Hickenlooper felt that he was above the need to go and actually testify that this was some sort of a frivolous occasion uh, in terms of the Independent Ethics Commission looking into these issues, let alone holding a hearing. And so he didn't want to testify, did he? No, he didn't. And, um, you know, it was just, I mean, procedurally, it was really hard to get this case to hearing because initially, uh, I had been working with his attorney and we had agreed he would appear. His attorney would be allowed to call him first and then I would cross-examine him. And we had, you know, I had asked the attorney, do we need a subpoena? And he said, no, you have my assurance he'll be there. And then the week before the hearing, he announced he's not coming and I'm withdrawing my stipulation. And so we had to go back to the commission and ask for a subpoena. And then uh, he said he was going to, we served the subpoena on him on Monday before the hearing. And then he said, I'm not coming. Uh, he then filed, he then hired a DC lawyer who I think was Hillary Clinton's lawyer in 2016 to fight the subpoena. In the meantime, he had another lawyer in Colorado being paid by the state to fight the ethics charge. Um, and so then he tried to fight the subpoena in district court. Uh, Tuesday night, the district court, uh, or Wednesday night, the district court said, no, you have to appear. Thursday morning, he didn't show up. Oh, I want to go to the one of the things you just said, Suzanne, and that is a taxpayer-funded attorney. His primary attorney to address the ethics complaint was funded at, what, $529, I think, an hour by taxpayers of Colorado going back to 2018 when this thing was filed, right? Yes. He, uh, he had a uh, special attorney general designated to represent him and it was being paid 
uh, by the governor's office out of the 9-11 um, recovery fund. I just find that stunning. Uh, here you've got an ethics complaint that he doesn't even want to entertain. And then he's got taxpayer-funded attorney actually doing the representation. I, it's just, and, then, and then he's refusing to testify and ultimately has a contempt citation against him. I'm just stunned that this all is, is the way that he felt it was appropriate to operate like this. Uh, that is to say, we've got a governor, former governor of Colorado, who seems to think that he is above the law and who seems to think that he is above any number of standards. Now, talk to me about the contempt citation. How did that happen, that he actually got held in contempt? So I ended my case and then I said, well, I have another witness, but I don't, you know, we were on a WebEx uh, Zoom type platform. Mm -hmm. And so you couldn't see everyone in the room, but we had already been told he wasn't going to come. So at the end of my case, I said, I have a w another witness, but I'm not sure if that person's here. I'm not sure um, how to proceed. And they said, well, why don't you just try calling him? So we called John Hickenlooper and then there was, you know, awkward pause and then, uh, his attorney announced he was not present, and uh, at that time they entertained um, essentially a motion to find him in contempt, and then they found him in contempt. Um, that night, the district court issued another subpoena to the attorney general to bring him in, and then, uh, I don't know, it was maybe around 9 o'clock, he announced to the media that he would show up the next day. He to didn't the media? Tell us until, yeah, he didn't tell us until the next morning at around, I don't know, 8.30. Well, this is the same guy, recall, who said to in an interview with somebody in the media, this is the kind of thing you should be protecting me from. You, the media, should protect me from. And you actually asked him about that. I did. He, uh, he had an interview with uh, Channel 9 with Marshall Zellinger back in, uh, I don't remember, maybe in the fall, um, where he said, you know, we did everything they told us to, and you guys should be protecting us. So I asked him, you know, who is we, who is they, who's you guys? Um, and he said, you guys referred to uh, journalists. That's who I was talking to. You guys should be protecting me on stuff, stuff like this. Um, and in that comment, who is you guys? You guys should be protecting me. Oh, that was, I was referring to the journalists I was talking to because, um, well, that, that, there was one journalist I was talking to, so I was you guys was other journalists. Something else, too, just a few minutes left with our guest, Suzanne Steyer, the attorney who essentially, I think it's still accurate to say, prosecuted this uh, Independent Ethics Commission complaint against John Hickenlooper, former governor of Colorado, now running for United States Senate last week. When we look at this uh, question of him showing up finally on Friday to testify, he didn't know answers to certain questions. He's clearly demonstrated, I think he even said, that he wasn't prepared to testify. And I think it was because he wasn't planning on testifying all along and was trying to avoid it altogether. And I think that also shows how little he took this seriously. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, we had hundreds of, ex maybe 100 exhibits, I guess, or I don't know, 80. And I, I kept asking him about the exhibits and he didn't recognize any of them. And so I asked him, have you prepared at all for this hearing? And he said, no. Um, one of my friends texted me because we had a conversation about this wedding he went to for um, uh, Kimball Musk. And he talked about how he prepared like six hours to you know officiate this wedding. And my friend said he spent you know 600 times more 
<laughs> preparing for this wedding than this hearing. So, yeah, he didn't take it seriously at all. Well, and also, uh, John Hickenlooper, when it comes to the, the, the testimony, too, I mean, in, in refusing to present his side of the case, I mean, this is a guy who was, in, was, was unwilling to show up via, with his attorney via the WebEx platform you're we talking about, but he was willing to record a campaign ad to have a film crew come and film a campaign ad, Suzanne. Yes. Uh, and that became an issue because he kept saying he wasn't coming because it would violate his due process because he couldn't be in the room with his attorney. So one of the motions we filed, which they called outrageous, uh, pointed out that he had been in a room with a camera crew um, and that if he could be in a room with a camera crew, he could probably be in a room with his attorney. Outrageous. How dare you actually say he should come and participate with his attorney in this way? when he was willing to have a whole film crew come in for a campaign ad. So what's the bottom line lesson that you've learned from this experience about how John Hickenlooper views these sorts of ethics rules and, and what it really shows about how a process like this can work reasonably well, maybe, to, to at least get a politician like Hickenlooper to finally show up, even though you have to go through a heck of a lot of headaches? Yeah, I mean, he just lived a very elite lifestyle, and I don't think he he really thought he should have to, you know, come down to maybe the level of regular Coloradans. And so I think we learned that, uh, you know, an ethics process uh, can work when you have subpoena power and when you can bring somebody in and uh, hold them accountable to, to the law that the Coloradans have passed. Yeah. I'm just still in... I'm not surprised because I saw this kind of thing coming for, for weeks and, and really months in terms of how he's approached this. But I am stunned because you would think that somebody, at a minimum, somebody who wants to represent the people of Colorado in the United States Senate would take something like this seriously and not have a Denver Post headline talking about how he's been held in contempt. But I guess if you think you are above the law and above these kinds of ethics limitations, then you're not feeling the need to take it seriously. I don't know. A final word from you, Suzanne Steyert. Um, you know, I just appreciate uh, the effort all those commissioners put in to, to get this to a hearing and to, to hear our case out and really thoughtfully consider it. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a positive process, and I think we saw, you know, some justice served. Yeah, I, I do have to say I'm very pleased with how the commissioners handled it just from even at a minimum from a process standpoint. And also I think you did a, a great job, Suzanne Steyer, representing the Public Trust Institute in these proceedings. And also, as I mentioned, a former Deputy Secretary of State for Colorado. Thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate you taking the time today. Yep, thanks, Jimmy. And job well done. Congratulations. Thank you. Once again, Bye. Suzanne Steyer joining us. And just a, a quick word, I am stunned, as I said, stunned that you would have a guy like John Hickenlooper do this sort of thing, go through this whole rigmarole, not taking it seriously, but at the same time, not surprised. Bottom line, taxpayer-funded attorney for trips that he did in violation of ethics rules in the state and the Constitution. He went on these trips thinking, oh, you know, it's all good. I'm okay. Then he gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar. He doesn't want to testify. He's basically dragged kicking and screaming to finally testify. 
before this commission on the second day when it was supposed to be a one-day affair. And just if you look at the proceedings and everything, you have to wonder what was this guy thinking, and I think there's only one conclusion. I am above this, and I shouldn't be having to deal with this. Instead, the media should be defending me on this. The arrogance of some politicians never ceases to amaze me. Ooh, wow. It, indeed, it really does not. And keep in mind, keep in mind that John Hickenlooper is the first Colorado in the history of the state and this Independent Ethics Commission ever to be held in contempt by the Independent Ethics Commission. Now, something else that kind of shows the mindset of John Hickenlooper is the way in which he went about running for president, dropping out, and becoming a United States Senate candidate, even after, during the, the uh, presidential campaign, saying he's not cut out to be a senator. I just thought I'd use this opportunity in October of 2018. The end of October 2018, I first interviewed Frank McNulty of the Public Trust Institute, the same organization Suzanne Steyer directs now and is the attorney who, of course, uh, prosecuted former Governor Hickenlooper last week. When he was governor, I got wind of this story. I covered it. I interviewed Frank McNulty, and afterwards I made a prediction about John Hickenlooper. Mind you, this is October of 2018. I thought I'd take a moment to share. Here's what I think is really going on. I said this at the beginning of the show. My contention is he's not actually going to stay in the race for president. He's running for president so that he can build a national fundraising base and then decide, no, you know, I'm actually going to challenge Cory Gardner for the Senate because he's, he's much more likely to win in the U.S. Senate than he is against 20 other Democrats in a primary for president. I think, I think that's abundantly clear in my mind that he doesn't have a shot as a presidential contender. Maybe he could want to be vice president. That could be a leverage to the next step. Okay, maybe he could do that. But I think he's, he's, he'd be more likely to be victorious in a race against Cory Gardner with some semblance of incumbency. That was Hickenlooper's strategy all along. I really continue to believe it. I don't think it was that he wasn't doing well in the presidential race, and then he decided, oh, well, you know, I think I'll go for this Senate thing. I think he botched his presidential run in ways that made it more difficult for him to set up his U.S. Senate race, but I still think that was the plan all along. Just had to take a moment to share that with you. Now, I do want to expand a little bit more on this saga of John Hickenlooper, given the significance here of the U.S. Senate race in Colorado. I think it's worth expanding a little bit more. And so on Friday, I did this interview with Michael Fields, who's executive director of Colorado Rising Action, a conservative group here in the state of Colorado, where we focused most of the conversation on the Hickenlooper saga. And I wanted to share that portion of the interview here now. Hey, Michael, how are you? Hey, good, Jimmy. It's good to be on with you. Good to have you, as always, my friend. And look, this week was really something with the show that was the Independent Ethics Commission hearing on former Governor John Hickenlooper wants to be United States Senator and replace Cory Gardner, but apparently he has to be dragged kicking and screaming a day late to testify when he was subpoenaed in order by a court 
to testify. What's going on here? Yeah, I don't think it could have gone worse for uh, John Hickenlooper this week. Um, you know, this has been an issue that's been ongoing for a while now. Uh, they finally set a date when they were going to put him uh, up in front of the, the ethics committee. Uh, people agreed that this was the time to do it uh, until John Hickenlooper said, I'm not going to show up. And uh, he really didn't. And so they had to subpoena him. Uh, and the committee got really upset with him. They even sent the AG to enforce the subpoena. And uh, at the end of the day, it ended up that he got held in, in contempt. And so I don't know what their, his lawyers were doing, what he was doing, uh, but this is bad headlines for him on top of a case where he was flying around in private jets and shouldn't have been. So uh, I, I think this really couldn't have gone wor worse for him. Let's take a listen to some of the sounds from this week's hearings. That the governor, notwithstanding being a mayor and a governor, had not been through any training on um, the ethical laws involved because all legislators are mandated to go through it. I went through it. I Shortly after I became a legislator, I was offered a very similar trip on a private jet out to the Jordan Cove on a, on a huge oil and gas pipeline issue that's still before the state and that the governor supported. And I knew enough to say, I don't think I can get on a, on a private jet without paying for it. You guys should be protecting me on stuff, stuff like this. Um, and in that comment, who is you guys? You guys should be protecting me. Oh, that was, I was referring to the journalist I was talking to because, um, well, that, that, there was one journalist I was talking to, so I was, you guys was other journalists. Okay. Michael, what do you make of the way in which John Hickenlooper answered some of these questions, how he conducted himself when he finally got to testifying, but also the, the clear frustration of the commissioners on this Independent Ethics Commission when the former governor wants to be the next senator said, nope, I don't want to show up. It's just not important enough for me to do so. Yeah, I think they took it very seriously. You remember uh, a couple of these people he appointed to this committee. So these aren't hostile people. Uh, towards him naturally, but they've seen how this is dragged out, uh, how they put up every roadblock possible so he doesn't uh, have to testify. And they really came down on him hard and they said, look, you know, as a committee, we have other people, other issues that we need to take care of. We don't need the AG spending a whole bunch of resources trying to track him down. Um, why doesn't he just come in and do this? And so I think, uh, you know, it, it was a very strong reaction, much stronger than I even thought uh, would be from these committee people. And uh, I think it was warranted. He said, even when he came uh, to testify eventually, he said, I, I didn't really prepare for this. And I think that is something that's insulting to the process and insulting to, uh, you know, should be insulting to, to citizens in Colorado. Well, of course he said, I didn't prepare for this because he probably didn't, because he wasn't expected to actually show up because he thought he could get away without showing up. Yeah, and we're the ones paying for his lawyer, right? He has he had two That's lawyers. Right. One uh, is a is a five hundred twenty five per hour uh, taxpayer funded lawyer, and the other one came in from uh, the DSCC from Washington D.C. And neither of them could give him good enough advice to not totally botch and butcher this process. And so, uh, yeah, I think that the headlines have shown it all this week with that contempt, uh, with the fact that he hasn't been prepared, and the underlying charges that I think are legitimate. And so in terms of the legitimacy, I mean, look, I had not heard that there was such a thing as a Maserati limo 
until I first interviewed Frank McNulty of the Public Trust Institute about this in 2018, just before the 2018 election. What's interesting to me is there were some conservatives at the time who were like, this is a distraction. We should be focusing on Polis. And I had McNulty on twice on my old morning show, Business for Breakfast, where you filled in before, and also on the Jimmy Sangenberger show. And we had a conversation about it. And I was just stunned. Maserati limos, flights paid for by corporations, and we're talking significantly more than the uh, ethically permitted amount under, I admit, I concede that the constitutional limitation on gifts is too strict, but the, nevertheless, he went well above and beyond that. And even back in 2018, I thought, we need to get this out before he leaves office and have this investigation because you need to hold these people into account. Yeah, and everybody has to play by the same rules. If you don't like the rules and think the amount's too low, you can go and change it. But every other elected official in Colorado has to play by those rules and has been doing so. And if they want an opinion, they go to the ethics committee uh, beforehand and say, is this possible? We've talked about other elected officials who have said, you know what, we want to go on this trip. Is it legal? Is it ethical? And they say, yes, go ahead. Hickenlooper blew through all that and said, you know what, I don't even care. I'm going to do this stuff anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think this is also something that these case, this case that's brought right now uh, has six different incidences, but those are the only ones in the statute of limitations. We have dozens and dozens of other ones that happened before that. So this was a pattern uh, that he did, and he's, he's hopefully going to be held accountable. Yeah, the one thing that I've noticed is that, and this is kind of like Joe Biden in some ways, Michael Fields, our guest executive director of Colorado Rising Action, and that is when he's in the hot seat, when he's put on the spot, He's not very good. He's not so fluent. He's not the folksy person that he's known to be otherwise. He can't answer tough questions. Yeah, and I think this is something that he hasn't been challenged to the degree that other politicians have. Uh, and I think it's going to hurt him this year in general. But he's somebody who said he wasn't cut out to be a senator. He didn't want to do it. Uh, they asked him why he didn't debate more against Romanoff. And he said because he likes to get his sleep. Uh, this is somebody who's going to be uh, under the limelight uh, for the rest of the year, and I don't think he's going to handle it very well. And he wasn't really a, a great leader uh, as governor. I mean, he was constantly he benefited from the fact that there was, you know, split government in, you know, Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate for most of his term, uh, his two terms. And so uh, he's just somebody who hasn't shown a lot of leadership, hasn't shown a lot of motivation, uh, and he doesn't do well under that kind of pressure. And there's going to be a ton of it this year. So, Michael, when we look at the 2020 senatorial race, how big of a deal do you think this will end up being? Not just the, the whole case in and of itself, but the fact that Hickenlooper flaunted the process, disregarded it, tried to think that uh, they tried to get away with this idea that he's above the law, even saying, I mean, we heard him tell reporters in the past, hey, you guys should be protecting me from this kind yeah. of stuff. So we see how he's been handling it. How do you think this could actually impact the 2020 election cycle? Is it going to be a big issue? I think it will be a big issue. I think it's hard to tell any kind of predictions in politics, especially in a year like 2020. Uh, it's going to be next to impossible. But I think people don't like uh, when people have ethics violations and then decide to skip subpoenas and have to get, uh, you know, contempt, uh, held to contempt. I, I think that it's really going to have a, a long lasting impact. But I also think the more Hickenlooper gets out there, I mean, he has two debates with Andrew Romanoff next uh, week. And, you know, you're going to have Kyle Clark and other people questioning him. And we'll see how he's able to hold up against that. But we know uh, Cory Gardner is a good debater. He's a good senator. Uh, I think the contrast is going to be there when somebody doesn't want the job, really, and somebody really does and is doing a good job with it. And so I think Corey has a lot 
to talk about, uh, you know, the positive stuff after the COVID stuff, all the testing, the, you know, that he able to got it, the masks, the ventilators, um, you know, BLM, tax cuts. I mean, there's a long list of things uh, that Corey has done well for our state. And we'll see what the mood of the electorate is, you know, based on what's happening up in the presidential race, et cetera. But um, I think Hickenlooper, the more he's out there, the more he's exposed uh, for the person who's not prepared and doesn't want to be doing this. Yeah, I, I have to say. And by the way, BLM, you meant Bureau of Land Management moving to Grand Junction. So just want to clarify. Yes, with, all, with all that's going on, I want to make sure folks, Michael Fields, know, know what yeah. you're referencing. But but going to your point about Hickenlooper, I mean, isn't it kind of hard to really muster up the strength to answer these questions if you don't think you're cut out for the job? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you look at it and <laughs> literally he said who, that. Remember, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he does. And and this is the problem that he has is this is a six year term. I mean, I, I just can't imagine what Hickenlooper in year four or five is going to be like if it's mm -hmm. this bad starting out of the gate. Um, you know, he's somebody who was a, a, a mayor for eight for eight years or six years, eight years and then eight years as governor. Um, and now he's moving. I just I don't think he wants to do it. And I think it's showing. Uh, and I think Romanoff's going to end up getting a lot more votes than people think just because of the backlash of uh, the comments Hickenlooper's made recently uh, for about the Black Lives Matter stuff, about, uh, you know, some of the, the positions that he's taken, uh, which I think are, are, you know, too extreme, obviously, on health care and uh, energy and everything else. But in the Democratic base, uh, there's a lot of people that don't like Hickenlooper. And so I think he's worried about this primary even before he gets to, to Corey. Although what's so interesting, you mentioned Andrew Romanoff, and I just have not seen him take up the issue of the contempt now, of Hickenlooper going before the Independent Ethics Commission, at least on social media, I don't see a peep from Romanov. No, I don't understand why. He hasn't done it. I think he thinks that it's not, you know, it's a it's a charge that that is, you know, being pushed uh, and doesn't agree with uh, Amendment you know, 41. But I think this is a huge opportunity either. to just even even rip on the process, though, and say, look, you know, if this was him and he had this, he would have gone and done what the judge said and done what the ethics committee said and talked about why he wasn't guilty. Uh, I think there's a huge opportunity for Romanoff to jump on this. The problem is, is he hasn't raised money. He hasn't gotten a lot of attention. Uh, I think if he could have put together uh, a better campaign, he'd have a real shot right now, given the timing of all of this when ballots are going out. Uh, but Romanoff has really, I think, been a disappointment for a lot of the, the, you know, the further left people in the primary who really want somebody as an alternative to Hickenlooper. And final question on the 2020 election cycle. Michael Fields, again, our guest, executive director of Colorado Rising Action. When we look at the race for Senate and Cory Gardner's reelection, what do you think he really needs to – look – when we're talking about an election, you need to boil things down to some key points. What are the key points that Cory Gardner needs to emphasize in your view? Well, I think one is the economy. We don't know what it's going to look like, but if it starts bouncing back the way that it even has this last month, um, you know, they thought there was going to be, uh, you know, eight and a half million jobs lost. And we end up with two and a half million jobs Dang. created, unemployment going down. That is going to be something that is going to be huge because people thought we were going up to 20% unemployment. Um, I think the policies, how strong the economy was before COVID hit is what would help bounce back now. And I think a lot of that has to do with the policies that Corey helped implement with the president. But I think the, the other thing is just all the things that he's done for Colorado. We talked about uh, the headquarters of, of, of BLM. We talked about, uh, you know, space command coming here, the bipartisan ranking, the high bipartisan ranking that Corey has gotten the bills that he's passed. Um, I think there's a, a strong case with tax cuts and everything else, but 
this is what he's bringing back home to Colorado, why he's a good senator. I think that tied with the economy could be a winning message. Again, that was Michael Fields, Colorado Rising Action Executive Director. That is a conservative organization out of Colorado, where, of course, we're broadcasting from as well. That interview was conducted on Friday. And my goodness, I mean, let's just put on the screen here, uh, the Colorado Rising PAC put this up. And this is a collection of some of the headlines that John Hickenlooper got out of this situation. I mean, you look, the Colorado Sun, the Denver Post, CBS4 locally, and then nationally, The Hill, Fox News, CNN, all talking about how he was found in contempt and declined to show for the ethics hearing until, of course, Friday, day two, he was brought in and decided to actually cooperate. Not a very good look for a guy running for Senate, who, by the way, is still in a primary, likely to get the nomination, but nevertheless, not good when you're running in a very contested race to try to unseat an incumbent senator. But, you know, that's how things go. Sometimes that's just the way the cookie crumbles. That is it for us today. Thank you so much for being along for the ride, working up some great shows as the week continues. Please do subscribe to the YouTube channel if you have not done so already. YouTube.com slash Jimmy at the Crossroads. My thanks to Nathan Matouche, producer extraordinaire, working the Matouche Magic, our partners at the Washington Examiner, as well as Suzanne Steyer and Michael Fields, our guests from today's program and you for listening again subscribe to the youtube channel like us on facebook follow me on twitter thanks so much have a great day stay safe well and healthy and may god bless america